Hi everyone, welcome to episode 2 of The Faster Show. Today on the show I had Tom Moyer, who is a PhD student at De Montfort University, and he's researching the history of learning disability sport in Britain between 1960 and 2012. We spoke about the history of disability sport and where we are now with it. Hope you all enjoy and let's get straight into it. Hi everyone, Joe here again from the Festa Show. So this is my second podcast now, and today I have with me is Tom Wire. Hi Tom. Hi Joe. How are you? Yeah, doing alright. I was uh, just saying I had a busy busy day of work and then training and just uh, kicking back with a beer now. So uh, yeah, apologies if there's a little bit of slurping down the line, but uh, always, hopefully it makes a better conversation. 100%. That's the, that's the whole point, isn't it? A couple of beers, podcasts. Mm. Enjoy. So, Tom, do you want to just tell the listeners quickly just who you are, what you're currently studying, and at what university? Yeah, so Tom Weir, and I was based at De Montfort University. Now, comfortably into my fourth year of, of doing a full time PhD, so a little bit behind, but we'll come to that. Uh, <laughs> but looking at the history of learning disability sports within the UK. So I've been researching and, and writing uh, this, this history, which tracks uh, how people with learning disability, intellectual disability, uh, various other kind of historical terms for, for, for them, uh, how sport has been part of their life, how it's enabled them to integrate into society and how it's enabled uh, also society to to better sort of uh, change its perception and, and almost be more welcoming to, to people with disabilities. Uh, so that's been my, my research. I'm, I'm very near to the end of it, hopefully. So only the, only in the last kind of few weeks, few months left uh, of, of finishing up that PhD. But I also work full time now as well at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So balancing those two. Oh, very interesting, Tom. Very interesting. <laughs> Just, just for the listeners to know, what kind of got you interested in your PhD topic? So, do you want to just say quickly what you studied at undergrad and masters? Yeah, so at uh, undergrad, I went and did history. I was, I was based up in York, uh, University of York. I did my sort of traditional three-year undergrad. I actually then pissed off to New Zealand for two years and had a thoroughly good time over the other side of the world, uh, right up until my visa ran out and they effectively kicked me out. Uh, Came back, spent a year working in the city and working in a, in a financial headhunting job, which was really terrible. Uh, but ultimately led me to realising that actually I probably wanted to go back and have a little look at uh, something sort of a bit more academic. And I, I managed to, uh, working at my rugby club, we, we came up with this topic of, of researching uh, the history of World War One rugby players. At Saracens Rugby Club, which I was a, another side project that I, I did over the four years uh, between 2014 and 2018, and we got lottery funding for that, and that kind of really made me think along alongside the fact that I was by that stage working full time as a tour guide, having having quit work in the city, that um, there was potentially a, a kind of interesting career to be made out of of looking at history, research, and history, and particularly sport history was always my, my real passion. I consider myself uh, not really a proper sportsman, but I, I would say I'm enthusiastic um, and like taking part in, in uh, rugby being my main sport, but pretty much anything that has a, a stick and balls, uh, I will happily play. And uh, I just find also that the particularly the sort of socio-cultural aspects around it absolutely fascinating and, and realise this is something I want to go and study and, and look at and, and really kind of understand with a few potentially for, for getting a job in, in sort of the sporting industry or uh, something like that. And, and during the course of my master's, which I did based at De Montfort, it, it kind of quickly dawned on me that there was real scope for looking at you know, areas of sport history that haven't been covered and, and the, the absolute gaping hole there was, was disability sport, but very particularly learning disability sport. Um, because sort of Paralympic sport, Paralympic history does does get some, some quite good coverage. 
Uh, there's some there's very good historians of Paralympic history out there. There's an awful lot of very, very shit Paralympic history, part of my French. Um, but I don't know to tell you which one's which. Uh, but there was simply no history being done around learning disability and uh, partly because of, of sort of growing up being uh, involved with various uh, things that sort of theatre groups that, that work with people with learning disabilities you know I realised just what an important uh, aspect of area group of people in, in society it was and, and how underserved they were being and how poorly served they were being by this real kind of lacuna of history and you know if not me then who um so we uh sat, sat down with my supervisor talked it through or my potential supervisor uh as it was at the last stage uh he helped me put together a funding bit and i was i was fortunate enough to win funding from the midlands three cities it treated like a job which was really helpful um really useful and, um I think is a real kind of vital thing if you're looking at doing a humanities PhD. Um, I, I would have really struggled to do it without uh, without having that. Um, but for me, it allowed me to really kind of explore not just the topic I was, I was researching, but a lot of the, the other interests and opportunities around it. So I was able to do sort of various research projects and uh, kind of deliver sort of, uh, sort of organisational change in uh, research to Special Olympics and I also work with the Rugby Museum at Twickenham, uh, as well as sort of the uh, research project for Saracens in their world, but one place. So I've been able to do quite a lot of uh, extra, really interesting stuff around it. Um, so, yeah, um, lots to unpack, I guess, there, but uh, it's a very, very long answer to your original question of why did you get into it. But um, to, to fully round back on that, it was because I saw that there was this gap uh, in history, it needed to be filled. and. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to to get the funding to do it, to, to go and research. So yeah, that's that's why. No, that's great, and I think um, I think the listeners will be at that as well. How much experience you've had alongside as well. We'll definitely go into the um, what was it between 1960 and 2012? You kind of to focus your research on in that time. Yeah, so that was my. Yes, it was. Yeah, I started in 1960, or actually it slipped to be 1959 because that's when um, a very important governmental act was was brought in. Um, although I say that, but actually my first two chapters are providing context for 1959. So I actually start back in into the 1800s uh, and earlier, looking at, at perceptions of disability then. Um, but I, I deliberately chose uh, that as my major starting point. Uh, and 2012 was my finishing point because they're seen as quite important dates for uh, the perception around disability. And uh, London 2012, the, the Paralympic Games particularly, are heralded as being this kind of a great, it's almost coming out moment for, for disability within the UK. But it, 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 and it was for some elements of elite physical disability, but it was the Paralympics is very poorly served people with learning disability and that's something that's a, a nuance that quite often gets lost um, but yeah that also meant it was it was captured in history and what it also meant was that I was able to do a lot of my research as oral history um, because that was a technique I kind of realized very early on was going to be absolutely crucial to what I wanted to do uh, for a few reasons because a there isn't an awful lot of written evidence uh, about a lot of these grassroots clubs. Uh, that which there is, is often quite poorly organised. Quite a lot of it has been thrown away because organisations like Special Olympics have, have not prioritised keeping an archive, given that they've been moving offices every few years. Uh, it also meant, uh, crucially for me, that was, that was one aspect, the sort of real dearth of, of information. But for me, the more important element was that by doing an oral history, it meant I could actually go and speak to those people who were involved. They were able to put across you know, their side of the story that they wouldn't have done if I was asking them to write something. Um, the amount of information that can get conveyed in, a, in an hour, a two-hour interview is, is far beyond that that would get conveyed if I asked people to, to communicate with me just via email or, or to write something down. And that was true for, for a lot of the organisers, the coaches, 
and especially for the athletes. So, so actually interviewing people with learning disabilities themselves because this is their story. They, they need to have a voice in it. And by asking them to turn around and if I were to, to turn around and to write something down or to record something, all I would be doing is, is turning around and sort of doubling down on why it is that society thinks that they are in some way lesser or in some way disabled. Um, very often learning disabilities obviously attached to uh, issues around reading, writing, but you get a lot of people who can be very articulate and they're, they're perfectly able to express their thoughts, express their emotions, express their feelings, remember their history. Ask them to write that down, you don't have a hope, but ask them to talk about it or, or to, to do it using things like photo elicitation. Uh, so talking me through photos, talking me through medals that they've won, using other prompts and you absolutely see these athletes come to life and, and they're able to tell their story. So that was an incredibly important part of what I wanted to do was to, to use oral histories uh, for, for the athletes, for the organisers. And that was another thing that meant that my, my time frame had to be quite sort of modern history. Um, so that, that was part of the, that was kind of the chief reason behind choosing that, uh, that area and, and that time. And I would, hugely recommend oral histories to to any historians or to anyone who is sort of in that uh, humanities area and and looking for a methodology uh, it's far far uh, nicer more pleasurable than sitting and, and scrolling through endless archives for my money anyway but um, there we go yeah that's very interesting i think like you said obviously because there wasn't much kind of literature on it you thought well instead of just you know trying to find the, the, the small amount of research, why don't we just actually, you know, talk to the coaches and speak to the athletes that have kind of been there, done that, and just, you know, hear their voice and see what they've got to say. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, PhDs for me are about creating something. It's it's not just turning around and, and synthesising something to check if you can do it in a slightly better way. It's, it's a unique opportunity to turn around and go, you know, bang, this is something I'm adding to, in my case, humanities, the literature, in my case, you know, the, the historical black hole. But I think for any PhD, being able to turn around and, and say that you've genuinely uniquely created something is, is a really exciting and interesting opportunity. And it, it gives you the opportunity to be the world expert in something, however unique, however niche, however obscure, whether that's a particular of history, whether that's elderberries, looking at you, Joe, um, you know, there, there's, there's some area in which you can definitively define yourself as being a world expert. And I, I think that's pretty cool. It's a pretty unique opportunity you get with the time you get through your PhD and, and, and should be something that you should look to grasp. Um, it's it certainly, you know, for me, it plays quite nicely to the fact that I have an enormous ego, uh, but you know, for, for anyone, it should be kind of a, quite a good opportunity to, to seize and, and something that can really help you stand out in both the academic, sort of your academic future, or whether that's a future doing any anything else. You will always have that little bit of, of this, the academic world to feel the knowledge that was yours, that you've created, which is quite nice. So. Yeah, no, it's some really good points, I think. Awesome nature of a PhD is was you know it is difficult and there's times where you think oh why did I even do this but then it's your niche it's your you know you by the end of it hopefully you should be an expert in that area and what, whatever it is it doesn't matter because it's important to you and I think that's the I think that's one of the most important things when you're looking for a PhD is something you want to find something else something that's not been found out before in a subject you're going to find it interesting. That's the main point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and as I said, you know, have a bit of have a bit of ego, have a bit of arrogance, have a bit of pride about it. Um, there's a there's a wonderful sort of saying I heard from someone, which was that you you know over the supposedly three years of your PhD, but you know I, I sort of eh, take that with a pinch of salt, but. The, the first year you spend learning from your supervisor, the second year you, you spend conversing with your supervisor, and the third year you spend teaching your supervisor. Um, because come the end of the PhD, you will know more than your supervisor in that area. Um, 
that is your, your goal, that is your aim, that is what they want you to do, unless they're a complete twat. Um, a good supervisor will want that for you to be able for you to overtake them in that particular area, which you know, fortunately I've had. Um, so a good supervisor, by the way, just not, not a bad one. Um, I, Oscar. <laughs> just to clear that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, you know, that, that for me, to, you know, if, if you were to ask for one thing that helped sort of define my, my PhD, it was the fact, or pride in it, it's the fact that I've kind of created all of this new stuff that I can legitimately put my stamp on and, and say that, you know, I am the world expert in this particular niche topic, which is kind of cool. 100%. I'm just going into your actual topic now. Um, so did you say when you were doing the interviews, did you, did you manage to cover kind of athletes and the coaches, was it? Yeah, so I, I managed to get a really nice broad range of, of people. I did over uh, 30 formal interviews, uh, as in sort of more kind of sat down, recorded, uh, and then uh, you then have to type them up, which is a complete or like, um, but, you know, transcription is the price we pay for, for going and, and doing interesting things. Like interviewing people um but uh, so the sort of over 30 kind of formal interviews i then also then went and did quite a lot of sort of semi-formal or, or just uh, i'd call them kind of locational or active interviews was the terminology i used which was going to clubs and just joining in not doing a formal interview but just chatting with the athletes chatting with the parents not stood there with a microphone not stood there with a notebook just talking to them as the normal human beings that they are. And quite often for the athletes, the, the best way of doing this was doing this while they're playing their, the game that they, they love. Um, they'd often feel quite intimidated if someone walks up and you know wants to do an academic interview with them. Whereas if a bloke turns up just wanting to play a bit of badminton or bowls and wants to have a chat, it's a very different kettle of fish. They're in a, a position and I, without going into the kind of Foucauldian theories of power here, because I know that, that, you know, it's every humanities PhD eventually comes back to Foucault at some point. It's like Godwin's law and Nazis. Um, but without going too sort of deeply into that, you know, if I'm rocking up as an academic with all the paraphernalia, you know, wanting to, to, to know their story, wanting to interrogate them, they're going to shut, shut up shop or they're going to come up with stock answers. Whereas actually being able to go and show that you, you sort of understand their ecosystem, but also exposing your own vulnerability to the fact that you are not as good at playing the game that they want to play as they are. Um, I got some of my, my most sort of honest and best answers by being truly crap at playing bowls or badminton. Um, and that wasn't put on. That was the fact I am truly crap at playing bowls at badminton. Um, uh, but that just helped the athlete feel like they were in a bit more of a position of power and, and, and a bit more of a position that they were then confident to be able to talk to me. And even though that isn't something I've got sort of on record, it, it informed a lot of the stuff I was doing uh, and informed probably my, my biggest takeaway, which was that you know, for a lot of these people playing, we, we can look at sort of the history of sport through these very academic lenses, but we've got to incorporate a lot of the emotional history in it. And I could turn around and say, well, you know, the, the reason they're playing sport is these ideas of physical advocacy and, and defying societal conventions around disability or turning around and, and, and uh, the importance of normalization and it links in with Tyne and O'Brien's ideas of normalization in 1982, that it's all about community presence and all that. And it, for them, it's bullshit because for them, it's, a, it's where their mates go. It's where they feel comfortable. Um, the reason they do it isn't for any sort of high and mighty activity or, or any sort of wider kind of big goal. It isn't to uh, create a kind of uh, change in the political landscape around looking at disability. It's because their best mate goes there and they like playing football with their best mate. It's the reason nearly all of us go to any sort of recreational club 
it's not to kind of assert a magical soft power that all of sport can do by our presence being there to turn around and, and define gender or racial or disability stereotypes. It's because we like doing it. And, and, and that for me was a really important point to try and get across. And, and I've been doing that an awful lot with uh, various kind of conference presentations as well. So whenever I've kind of had the chance, that's that's what I sort of bang people around me with, uh, figuratively, not literally, when when I'm sort of doing conference presentations. And, and I hope that kind of comes through with, with the PhD as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's really touching. Even me personally, you know, I think, like I play futsal, uh, which is kind of like indoor football. And, you know, even though it's kind of an intense sport, I don't think of it as... Oh, you know, I'm going there. It's not like a jog, like, oh, I'm doing this for fitness. I'm just, I'm just going to have fun. And it's just kind of gives you somewhat of a meaning, doesn't it? It's structured to your day and just makes you feel good, doesn't it? And it's really interesting that when you were speaking to the athletes, uh, I guess this was kind of the common theme, would you say, between most of them you spoke to? A hundred percent. It makes you feel good and it makes you feel normal. And it, like, we've all experienced what it is to not be normal over the last seven eight months because uh, for, for people hopefully listen to this podcast in 20 years this is 2020 this is the year of the great pandemic um it, you know we know now that that for me that the least normal part of this has been not being able to go out and play sports that that's been kind of the thing i've probably missed most and so for for those athletes why, why would they think any differently why would they, just because someone has Down syndrome or, or another unspecified learning disability, they have exactly the same kind of emotional attachment to going and seeing friends and being able to take part in, in general activity with them. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, that's been something that's, that's really kind of shone through. And, and uh, given they've been experiencing a lot of other sort of upheaval in, in terms of you know, where they're living, what their other sort of arrangements are, how they're, how they're being supported. Um, it, the, the, very often, the fact they can go to the same club that's being run by the same volunteer for 10, 15 years, that's one of the, the, the actual stable points of their life. And then they can go and do that and they can assert their normality. Um, but, you know, if we, were to, if we were to take that question kind of wider, you know, I know one of the sports you've played a lot is rugby league. Rugby league is, is uh, a sport that's very much sort of of the working classes and is, is there to kind of defy and then stick up for kind of the working class man against the posh sport of rugby union. Um, that's not why you play it, though, realistically, was it? You don't play it for a wider political goal. You play it because you enjoy playing the sport, right? Um, it, I... I, I I play rugby union. I, I did that, yes, because my dad played rugby union, because my mum liked rugby union, because there's a whole family track, because my school plays rugby union. There, there is, there is, you know, there is huge kind of socio-political stuff wrapped up in why I play a particular sport, but um, why I go, it's because I enjoy it. And it's, it, that's something that, that, you know, when we talk about uh, sport, sport history, very often that gets lost. Um, you know, even look at kind of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. That was hopefully going to be my last example. But, um, you know, sport has had immense power to kind of challenge racial dynamics. Um, and yes, you know, he chose to do that as a political statement. He chose to do that because he's, he's on a pedestal. He chose to do that because he, you know, he has that opportunity. Go back to Colin Kaepernick, age 14. Why is he taking up and playing American football? It's not because he thinks that in 15 years' time it's going to be a great sort of boon for him to challenge sort of racial orthodoxies within America. It's because he loves playing sport. And 99% and of the time that Colin Kaepernick is playing American football is because he loves it. Um, you, you've got to reflect that in if, if you're doing history, so you've got to look at that. So hopefully that's something that I've, I've really made sure is kind of in my, my thesis and, and it's something that's... Uh, added to this element of emotional history in, into what I've looked at. Yeah, so you covered some really interesting points there, Tom, just about players just wanted to be the same in general, just having a meaning and just playing, you know, not because of it, 
think of it as fitness. It was more just, just, just for the enjoyment, just for the fun, really. And I'm just interested to know, were, were these kind of common themes shared in coaches as well as the players? I, I, I think in the main, yes. I think uh, for the vast majority of people who organise disability sport, they are volunteers, they're quite often parents or siblings or, or someone who's been in some way kind of touched by, by seeing people with disabilities or involved with people with disabilities or, um, you know, realise that they can use their professional skill to, to sort of solve uh, what they see as being a, a sort of society injustice. So um, that was the case certainly for, for quite a lot of the, uh, the early founders of organisations that I interviewed who, who didn't have a direct link. So people like Chris Maloney, who set up Special Olympics UK, um, he tells this beautiful, beautiful story about uh, he was coaching the, uh, he, he was a swimming coach by trade and he was coaching a group and, and sort of would look up into the stands at the, where he was coaching, which was in Gloucester, and would see this young lad sort of cheering his brother on who was, who was swimming. And after a session, he goes up, he asks the parents, you know, why, why, why don't you let him swim or why don't you let him train? And they just turned around and said, oh, well, Paul has Down syndrome, so he couldn't swim. And Chris just turning around and going, well, look, let's give him a chance. And coaching him in between sessions and, you know, after a couple of weeks, he's got him to a level that he can join him with the class and is perfectly able to swim because, of course, he can. But, you know, this is back in the 1970s where parents had, had been brought up thinking that if you've got Down syndrome, you're frail, you're vulnerable, you, you, you're not going to live beyond childhood, which, you know, at that stage, the average age was still about 18, the average life expectancy. Now, now it's beyond 60. Um, that was how society saw people with Down syndrome. And people like Chris and people like Paul were able to kind of really bust through that barrier doing it. Um, but he's a little bit of an exception um, in terms of being someone who wasn't directly involved. But it, absolutely in the main, it is the day-to-day -day running of these clubs are usually parents. They, they're usually sort of socially, uh, socially motivated local organisers. Um, and there's very little kind of politics. There's a, a little bit of it at the very top. So some of the, the biggest organisations the Special Olympics itself was set up by uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was the, the sister of, of John F. Kennedy, uh, JFK. Uh, I would say Eunice is the Kennedy of all of that family who's had the most social impact. I will happily argue that with anyone. Um, you know, that there, there is a, a, a motivation of being the, the female, the sister who is ignored, because of the precocious, talented, handsome brother, who was a bit of a prick, to be honest. But this is again very, very another very kind of common theme that I found coming through this was you get a lot of these incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent, incredibly motivated women that are pushing through mm. with disability sport because a they are largely kept down by of of political representation and, and being on boards and other areas by what is still a very patriarchal society in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And by running sort of disability sport, by running charities, this, this is the big area of, of sort of women, um, you know, proving their worth in, in the, throughout the 20th century was, it was in charities, it was in philanthropic organisations, um, where they run with you know, alongside raising children, alongside quite often working, they run these clubs, they run these organisations. Um, and because they're not in any way particularly uh, attractive for, for males to get involved being on the boards of, you know, they don't come with the great with privileges of meeting uh, sort of dignitaries or important athletes in the same way that being on the board of the, the FA or the RFU or, or something is. Disability sports largely left up to these women. They just you, you don't get sort of much interference from sort of grandee men. So you have this whole sort of area of, of sport where women are incredibly powerful and incredibly important and, and run it immensely effectively. 
so that was another sort of sub sub theme of, of my thesis was looking at how all these women have kind of pushed on through and, and, and organized from scratch and really running against the current of, of where money was going and where support was going how they've organized these these amazing clubs and organizations again very often they're they're, they're not doing this purely out of a, a, a a desire to sort of be further placed in society they're doing it because their son their daughter wants to play sport they're doing it so that they get the chance that everyone else has um, that's the story of, of sort of men cap you know the the, the huge charities is now is set up by a mum who wants her daughter to have a chance to go to school and um, that sort of come through again sort of really struggling with all of this so there's very very few organizers who are who are acutely politically motivated there are one or two uh, particularly when you start getting into later years, into the 1990s, into the 2000s, with looking at involvement in the Paralympics particularly, then you start getting this acute uh, political awareness that, um, you know, we can use this, we can use what, what I term physical advocacy, we can use the excellence of these athletes to, uh, to, to quote some of the, the, the Paralympic Association as a battering ram to, you know, sort of break down barriers in society. But it's really not until that, that that real acute political awareness doesn't come through until until the 2000s. Before then, it's it's about doing what's fair, it's doing what's right, and all of us, all of its power, all of the stuff extra, all of the stuff behind it just comes because people are, are trying to to organise something so that their their son, their daughter, their brother can can have a fair chance. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm just thinking back now, just overlooking. The kind of sport history is from say the 1950s and stuff as it was kind of you know you said it was kind of 1970 where it started to really have an effect was that was there much difference between i guess males and females in disability sport um there is some but it's it's probably less than there is in mainstream sport right okay so because they are all bundled into this big basket of other there is certainly a, an added additional difficulty if you're a disabled female playing sport and if you're a disabled male right. but it is perhaps not as great as the difference between an able-bodied male and an able-bodied female okay. um, simply, simply put because there wasn't enough people to organize a separate disability male club and a disability female club they're all lumped into the same uh, sort of big basket and, and, and thrown in together. That's when you get these clubs. That's that's when you get uh, probably from the 19, well, the very first learning disability club, Cardiff Chameleons, swimming club, 1959, Cardiff. Uh, unbelievable club, still runs today, set up by this absolute phenomenal woman called Joyce Robinson. If anyone is looking for a historical project, please go and research her. There is an amazing stuff in the, the Morgan archives. Um, and I, I interviewed four people who were still part of that club who, who knew her since the 1970s. Unbelievable, unbelievable woman. That, uh, where was I? I've lost my train of thought on this. Yeah, Joyce Robinson. Yeah, no, um, uh, you, you sort of get, yeah, you, you, you don't have that. Um, she, she would have had a club that was just anyone who's turning up with a, with a learning disability. That's the first club. Where there is a difference, if you're going back uh, slightly before then, and, and if you're looking into um, what we probably call the asylums, what I've called throughout my thesis as residential institutions, because it, it doesn't carry the same stigma, and, and, and asylums mixes it up a little bit too much with people who were psychologically kind of ill, who would have a mental health problem, rather than people who were there because of, of having a learning disability. It, the, the difference is, is the temporary versus the permanent, basically. If you are uh, mad, as they used to call them, that's seen as being temporary. If you're an idiot, that's seen as being permanent. Those are very sort of 19th century terminologies, but they they, they hold true uh, through to sort of the 1950s still and, and how people are treated. In that setting, in these sort of great big out-of-town institutions, there is a difference. Men are taken outside to go and play sport. Women are doing dance, movement to music, their, their recreation is indoor, maybe skittles, maybe piano playing, uh, dressmaking. It, it, whereas males, their their recreation is let's go outside, let's play football, run around, etc. Um, that, that's just, I mean, that is what society was organised at at the time. It would have been 
unusual if it wasn't organized in that way. So that, that's not a particular slight or a, a particular change that you were seeing within these institutions that they are doing something differently. Um, you know, football, uh, sports, certainly pre-World War One, um, is an incredibly gendered activity. It is very, very dominated by males. Um, World War One, you get this little bit of, of a kind of uh, challenge to that, and there's some fantastic histories out there that is looking at that. And then, and then from there, there is a very, again, very underserved, uh, or, or it's not underserved by historians, courtesy of the last few years, because there are some brilliant, brilliant female historians who have, have plugged this gap. The public don't necessarily know about it yet, but that is changing. But there is a strong history of females playing sports kind of through 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. To round it back again to your question, I do this quite a lot. I go off on oh, no, tangents and then kind that's of come back. Uh, but to, to round it back completely, uh, there isn't a, the, the, the same gender split, particularly in disability sport, partly because they're already too much of a minority to, to then subdivide or split it again. Yeah. What is interesting, you do get some divisions between types of impairment. Okay. And one of the one of the, the great splits in in disability, and, and again, this, this is something that I think is completely understandable because of, of societal attitudes. There is a very strong split between physical disability and intellectual disability or learning disability. And a lot of uh, I, I put a lot of words in, in in quite a few of my chapters into understanding this, into understanding why it was that quite often the most hostile people towards playing with people with learning disability were people with physical disability. Right. Um, Paralympics, there was very joining. And, and on the first one, that's disgusting. When you when you actually look into it, when you think of it through, um, it's something entirely learnable. Yeah, sorry, Tom, just for the listeners to know, what is the difference between kind of a physical difficulty and a learning? I don't know if you could just explain that. Uh, yeah, so in terms of how we would uh, we would class it, um, there, there are some quite sort of big uh, differences. I mean, disability tends to be classed as thing that's not uh, normal, and, and you could see some really big air quotes on that if uh, if we had video. Um, you will get a, a lot of people, some people who uh, say wheelchair users or people who uh, are. are amputees or physically uh, injured, whether that's from, from birth or, or due to an accident or due to service at war or um, something like that, they will, they will class themselves as being physically impaired. And the part of the problem was that they would get lumped in with this, this or they'd simply be othered. So they would be seen as being less capable generally uh, than the general populace. And that was something that, that they very often had a real problem with. So a lot of disabilities, particularly those who were wheelchair users, but otherwise uh, not, not in any way kind of mentally impaired. And a good example of this is someone like Tanya Gray Thompson, who's incredibly bright, incredibly astute, certainly a credit to the House of Lords, and God knows they need that. Um, but she's a good example of, of particularly earlier in her sort of career and uh, she was actually very hostile to, to people with learning disability taking part in the same sport um, because there was this movement to get people with learning disability involved in the Paralympics and her perception her take on it was that this would essentially lead to confusion amongst the general public between the sort of key impaired athletes such as her but who were otherwise mentally able with people who were seen as, as at that stage, the language was mentally handicapped. They were very much these sort of second or third class citizens. And that that would be a bad thing for, for perceptions on her. But part of it also was that it simply wasn't her problem or it simply wasn't the problem of people who already have difficulties of their own in terms of taking part in And you have to remember, you know, back in the 1980s, 1990s, there isn't ramp to every sports facility. Uh, there isn't disabled toilets around. The problem still exists, by the way, but, but it's not legal, or it's not a legal requirement for sports clubs to do this until 2005. Wow. So they're already lots of problems. So why should it be their problem to load on 
an extra Catholic who able to to take part in in their sport and you know is has a learning disability their way of for competing over 400 meters is by running mm-hmm. surely that also do people competing in a wheelchair in the Paralympics um, so that, that was part of yeah, Tom, you touched on some good points there. I'm just wondering, just for the listeners, if you could just explain what the difference is between a physical and a learning disability. Um, I, well, I think most people have at least a, a, a decent sort of insight into um, different sort of elements. And when it comes to disability, you, you have three sort of rough uh, areas. You have people who are purely and, and solely physically impaired. I'm going to use the term impaired here. Yeah. Um, uh, and you will then have people who, uh, on that basis, just to, to, uh, to, to fill people in, uh, difference in impairment and disability. Um, you will get an awful lot of uh, activists using the, the, the term impairment. And I, I, I agree with them actually, in that the, the idea is that, um, Yes, there is uh, a, an issue that is only created or made a problem by society. Um, so if someone is using a wheelchair but is otherwise you know, perfectly kind of capable, um, the only thing that creates an issue for them in society is when there's not enough ramps or there's too many stairs. Um, you know, a, 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 someone like a sort of David Weir or a, a Tony Gray Thompson, uh, she comes up quite a lot in this, I guess. But... Uh, it, you know, her life is made problematic by high shelves or by a lack of, you know, basic design architecture like ramps. Um, but there's nothing inherently wrong with her. and It shouldn't. Okay. Uh, labelling it as a disability is a very medicalised way of, of in some way implying that the person themselves is wrong. Whereas actually what a lot of disability activists argue, and, and again, I agree with this, is that we need to take a more social model or a social approach to this. and Turn around and, and say, what is it we as a society are not doing that allows people to be more easily accommodated within society? Um, uh, an example I've used to explain to the students before is uh, I'm six foot two and, and quite a, a, a wise human being. I cannot sit in a Ryanair flight seat. Um, me trying to get into one of them is like watching clowns get into a car. Um, it just doesn't happen very well. If you were to ask me to have to do that, if, if the only way that I was able to sit in a seat in society was in one the size of a Ryanair seat, I would definitely be disabled or diseased by that. Um, that would be something that we see as basic societal adaptation. Anyone who is wearing glasses, Society has adopted and accepted that that is a, a basic normal societal adaptation that we shouldn't stigmatise. Um, if you didn't, would you have an issue? Probably. Is that similar issue there for people who use a wheelchair to get around rather than in the same way that I do by walking on my feet? But I, I, I don't see there being an enormous amount of difference if society can adapt to it. Um, so that's going into a bit of disability theory there. Um, you will get people who are who are purely physically uh, impaired. You will have people, uh, and that, that's usually people with things like sort of spina bifida, amputees, uh, wheelchair users. You will have uh, some issues that, that affect both physical and intellectual or mental disabilities. So uh, certain types of cerebral palsy uh, will uh, affect intellectual disability as well. And, and it's about 50-50. So some people with cerebral, most people with cerebral palsy have issues speaking. So society generally thinks that they have a, a, disability, a, a mental or cognitive impairment as well. That's not the case for, for a lot of people. Um, but for some, there is a, a, an intellectual disability, a, a learning disability, um, as well as a physical disability. Down syndrome falls into this category as well. And then you will get people who uh, purely have an intellectual disability and to, to define what that is, a very, very broad, basic uh, assignment is usually people with a, an IQ under 70. That's what's generally taken to be a learning disability or an intellectual disability, but you will get lots of other categories thrown in there. Um, people who have 
sort of limiting or uh, problematic uh, with, with, uh, uh, sort of other uh, elements that that kind of impinge on their, their ability to understand areas of society. So uh, some people who have uh, sort of extreme forms of autism, you will get people who have other areas like uh, they've had a brain injury or a, a childhood injury. Um, all of these things can get wrapped up into, into learning disability, intellectual disability. Um, so those are some of the very basic differences on our, on our uh, as we said, medicalized level. When it comes to sport, you have the, the Paralympics are the very elite end of physical disability and for the vast majority of their history have been about physical disability only. Um, for actually even half the history, there was purely spinal injury only. When they were founded by Ludwig Gutmann, they were purely about spinal injury. They fought tooth and nail to keep other impairment groups out of there. They did not want amputees. They did not want people who had visual impairment back. They were not included. Um, very deliberately by Goodman. And that sort of legacy of, of it being purely about physical disability continued with this rejection or, or not wanting to have people with intellectual disability join. And this is something that, that has caused consternation. It's caused a lot of uh, issues for the, the Paralympic movement. It's caused a lot of protest. It's been uh, cited as by learning disability activists as a human rights issue. Uh, but it's actually something that's perhaps, if not acceptable, then perhaps understandable because a lot of those elite athletes taking part in the Paralympics wanted to help differentiate themselves from people with learning disabilities because society has always placed people with learning disabilities at the very bottom of the rung. That is society's problem, not, not the problem of disabled athletes. But they needed to, to push back a little bit on this kind of lumping together of all athletes who were seen as, as being disabled into one sort of big grab bag of, uh, of disability sport being a, a sort of one holistic whole thing. Uh, and it was only by making sure that people with learning disabilities were doing other sports and had, had their other competitions like Special Olympics uh, that allowed people with physical disability to, to differentiate and, and kind of rise up the societal ladder slightly through their own physical achievements. So that's part of the reason there was this kind of divide in, in disability sport, as, as well as the fact that on a very basic level, they need very, very different provision. Mm -hmm. um, if you are trying to organize a sport, just the simple, that you, you have people who are from very, very different need spectrums. And there is much, much more in common between someone who is bipedal and runs 400 meters using their feet than uh, and a, and a mainstream athlete. So the fact that one has a learning disability and the one is, is classed as not, doesn't necessarily make an enormous difference to how you need to train them, what physical attributes they need. Whereas if you have a wheelchair athlete, that is a very, very different thing. And so why should it be that someone with a learning disability would be put in a training group with wheelchair athletes just, just because mainstream pe people, athletes were rejecting them and saying that they shouldn't be around there. Um, so that, that was part of the sort of big argument that uh, around whether people with learning disabilities and people with physical disabilities should be doing the same sporting activities, should be sort of in the same groups. And at the elite level, it certainly got very sort of deep, dark and dirty. And I go into this into, into my PhD. I managed to interview quite a lot of the people who were in some really crucial meetings uh, about whether learning disability was included. But very often uh, at the most basic at grassroots level, if you're going to special Olympics clubs, mid-cap clubs, you will find people there with all sorts of, of different impairments who will usually have a learning disability as their, their main uh, sort of headline impairment, but will have various other physical difficulties. And at grassroots level, you don't get those issues. They, you, you will get people playing together. You will get people just there to, to, to enjoy themselves and to, to take part in sport. Um, 
and that's again i think part of the beauty of sport is it's a real uniter of, of people and it's a place where people can can mix can enjoy themselves and it's, uh, a cheer club that i've been involved in recently uh, to to give uh, them a shout out um it's the barks of brigands which is a mixed ability rugby club and they're a fantastic little club in there uh, and it, it's this, this idea of mixed ability sport is similar to, to Special Olympics Play Unified and, and various other um, initiatives where you you make some sort of subtle adaptations in the sport to ensure that people who are from a, a mainstream sporting background will play with people who are from a, a, a disability sporting background. This is come, becoming more and more of a case in schools. You know, you'll, you'll see schools who will play things like goalball, which was advised for the blind community. So how do you, how do, you do that? Well, you put blindfolds on people. And, yeah. uh, you, you get them to play what's, uh, uh, you know, quite interesting and, uh, and difficult sport. Um, where they've got the facilities, you know, do you put people in, in, uh, in chairs and get them to play wheelchair basketball? I've seen that happen. And, Things like wheelchair rugby league uh, exists, and that is uh, a free for a water sport. That is phenomenal. And you know, for, I had a, a, a chat with the England captain actually uh, of, of the England wheelchair rugby league team, and he said, you know, well, part of the beauty of that was that one of his teammates who'd, who'd been injured uh, in service, um, he could play alongside his brother who who wasn't a wheelchair user. But because his brother wasn't a wheelchair user, it was like sort of watching a human being trying to run in flippers because he was so not used to being in a chair. He just had no uh, sense of, of, of using it properly initially. So he wasn't at any advantage. So it, it put everyone in that, that. It meant they could all play together, but everyone was on a, on a relatively level playing field. Um, but what you find with these sort of mixed ability sports is you, you have people with physical disabilities, learning disabilities, mixing with people who play the sport regularly, but quite often it, it might be people who are a little bit older in the case of rugby, you know, sort of veterans who are playing with, who, you know, used to have knees sort of 20 years ago or, or sort of a functioning back or, you know, shoulders that could actually lift above their head. Um, but they're getting an opportunity to, to go and help and to, to play what is still full contact rugby. Uh, to facilitate, but just without the the need to smash each other off the pitch or um, any any real kind of danger in that, they're getting a whole new enjoyment out of the sport, whilst also helping people who have Down syndrome or autism or other sort of uh, physical or intellectual impairment, helping them be able to join in. And through doing so, it breaks down a, a barrier of of, of being able to actually socially function and, and meet people that you may not otherwise meet. Um, I've certainly met a lot of, you know, fascinating and good fun people to be around by going to the Mixed Ability Rugby Club and, and meeting uh, these, these young, you know, fellows, the young men. Um, I'm lumping myself into young man there still, just. But, uh, you know, these fellow young men who just are there to learn to play rugby, I get a lot of enjoyment out of being able to help facilitate that. Uh, I'm learning something about how I'm communicating, how I'm training. Um, but I also just thoroughly enjoy the conversation and, and being able to have a bit of banter and a bit of laughs with them. Um, so that's something that's, that's really kind of progressing and, and coming through is, is this sort of mixed, uh, mixed approach. And I've seen with some of the... the, the should we say more talented athletes uh, you know i mean that as a, a genuinely based on their talent um that you will see athletes crossing over and, and playing in mainstream sport or, or really excelling in, in in these areas and it uh, you know i guess my my kind of final point i want to make is that that does change then your perception around the should we say societal worth of people with learning disability um you know, we can put people with learning disability in this box and, and say, oh, well, you know, they, yes, because I, I can't send them, they can't do difficult maths equations or they can't write a 2,000 word essay that we should in some way kind of put them in a, in a, in a, in a position where we're thinking that they are less valuable members of society and that's bullshit. Um, especially given when, 
someone can very easily physically outperform me. You, you just have to go to a Special Olympic Games or to a club and, and see a guy lift, physically lift more weight off the floor than you can. And given, you know, I will define myself an awful lot by, you know, my physical prowess as, a, as an athlete or as a, you know, the, in some way that that's sort of linked to my elements or my area of sort of masculinity that, you know, I can go to the gym how like a gorilla and lift a big lump of iron off the floor. If there's a lack of learning disability who can do that to a greater extent, should I not respect him and, and we understand what he can do? And if he can do that, is he not then capable of doing, you know, doing as good a job moving boxes around a warehouse as I am or would be able to? Um, you know, look at some of the, the, the schemes that are getting people learning disability into jobs now. And, you know, you understand that there is real value that, that people are bringing uh, to what they're doing. And a lot of that has come from them playing sport, them being around other people, them learning discipline and being fit enough to take part in everyday activity. And, and ultimately having society's mind changed about the, the societal worth of people with learning disability, which is, has come through them playing sport uh, for the last sort of 40, 50 years and, and really sort of breaking down those barriers. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing I'd probably want to leave people with is, is this real value that these sports clubs and, and that taking part in, in playing sport has had sort of backwards for people learning disability. It has been and made a huge difference to their lives. Um, but to go back to my, my very first point, that's not the reason they play. They play because they want to do it to have fun. Okay. Um, that's, that's my thesis wrapped up in a nutshell. Wow. No, thank you so much for that, Tom. I think what I kind of liked as well, just with what you've kind of said throughout the whole kind of this podcast really is, as disability sport has kind of, you know, improved along the years, it's kind of followed with, you know, how people adapt to disability sport as well would you would you agree i think that's where you've kind of the terminology you've used quite a lot because in order for them to you know to develop you know to have these clubs and stuff you know like you were saying back in the 1950s some of the words they used were you know disgusting the way they really they uh they spoke about disability sport but i guess as the years have gone along people have more adapted to it and realized you know they're not really any different to us. They're just as important and we need to, you know, improve the sport for I, them, isn't it? I, I would say so. And, and sport has been a, a very valuable uh, meeting ground to do that because uh, yeah, I mean, sort of hatreds, which, which there was back in 1950, fear, mistrust, lack of understanding comes because of alienation from, from people. Um, it's very easy to make a, a bogeyman or a, a have a fear of something that you don't see. Um, indeed, that's very often the only way that you can get people to fear something is to, to, to have something that's invisible. And when people with learning disabilities were cast out to the edge of society, or, or if they were in society, they were sort of the, the weird sort of person that you would cross the road to avoid, which there's plenty of accounts of that happening. Um, they, they can stay as this sort of bogeyman or they can stay as this kind of idea of something to be afraid of. Whereas, and they're always sort of different, they're always weird, they're always that you're not seeing them in a situation you recognise. Whereas when you turn around and see people learning to speak disability play football, you can immediately empathise with that. If you have been as bad at football as I have been throughout my life, I entirely understand their trials and travails trying to kick this stupid ball into a stupid net. Um, it, it gives me frames of reference to, to associate with and it gives me frames of reference to, to assimilate, be around, see them in public, realise that there's no difference between you know, that young lad who's playing football and, and me 15 years ago. Um, or, you know, someone of my age with a learning disability is playing it. We're the same. It also gives us something to talk about. Um, you know, we might not talk about the, the intricacies of my work, uh, but we sure as hell can talk about, you know, whether we want to see Man United win this weekend or not. 
um, it, it, it becomes a common language. This is something that is, is credited with sports an awful lot. You know, that there is an opportunity to build bridges, to build barriers, to, to, to create a conversation with people uh, by talking about sport. And that is just as available to people with learning disabilities as to anyone else. They can be just as passionate fans, they can be just as engaged, they can be just as insightful. Um, and by creating these common links, these, these areas of commonality between you know, mainstream society and people with learning disabilities, it helps kind of get rid of this fear factor of the other or this, this the unknown. Uh, and it's been a huge building block between changing really society and how society sees people with learning disability from being excluded in, in the 1950s and 60s to becoming more and more part of our, our society as well, isn't quite there yet, but it, I would say it's slowly, slowly getting there uh, in the 2000s. So. No, that's great. No, Tom, honestly, thank you so much for this podcast. It's been uh, really insightful for me and hopefully for the listeners as well. I definitely, there's so many more topics I want to speak to you about, but I think we're definitely going to split this into a part one, part two. But um, yeah, no, thank you so much, Tom. And yeah, hopefully we can do a part yeah, two. Absolutely. I've only, I've only just got warmed up. I can absolutely uh, absolutely okay. speak for anything. Once, once I get going, it's hard to stop me. So. Love that. Brilliant. No, thanks, Tom. Yeah. Yeah, Cheers, Jay. Part two soon. Yeah, lovely to speak to you. Hi everyone, hope you enjoyed that podcast episode and I'll see you all next time.